Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner. You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further, because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner. You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further, because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Guys, I know I say this every episode, but I am very, very excited about our guest today. Uh, my partner is in. We got a few things that we need to get out, but I'm excited about this guest. Fatima, you got anything? I'm really excited about this guest too, because I have to admit, I've been a little jealous. Y'all have been spending a lot of time together. You've got like this brotherhood going. And the little sister over here is like, wait, I want to hang out. You guys <laughs> were in Jersey together last week. Hey, you guys went to see the Soprano house and I had FOMO. I'm looking at all these lives and you all look like you were having a good time. And I was just a little mad I wasn't invited, but I get it. We'll we'll talk a little more about what these two have in common. If you look um, at them, they don't look like they have a lot in common, but they sure do. And so that's why I, I love it. And I love doing this podcast because we get to have folks like our special guests on today where it just brings us all together and we can see how we all connect as humans That's because right. we all can right back to That's carlos right. whitaker podcast we can That's all right. find common ground somebody may not look like you but you'll discover you could have a bond that yeah. you would never even imagine so i'm super excited but i also have another special guest on today really? and uh yeah i do his name is detective chris anderson <laughs> so chris i'm put you on the spot today okay. because and and for all our listeners out there he's mentioned it a few times on the podcast but you know our brother he's just not one to brag unless he's got this cool new fit he brags about those <laughs> that's, that's right that's right doubt right you you like your fit um love it but <laughs> he normally is not one to brag especially about his own goals and accomplishments and things that he's finally fulfilled but y'all who have been listening for a while now know that Chris has been working on a book and it is done. It is done. We're so excited. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I have read it and I'm serious. I'm biggie and I'm also real honest with Chris. So he knows I would have given him the truth about it and, and probably given him some edits with love, y'all. But I have to tell you, I just loved it. It was a page turner. 
I was laying there, what reading, and I was like, "We, <laughs> I just can't wait to talk to you about it." So I'm gonna yeah. put you on the spot. I'm gonna make you talk about this new book, and we're gonna give our listeners a chance to learn more about it and the opportunity to go out and support you because they love you and they know they're gonna want to buy it and I know they're gonna want to read it because it's good. Appreciate that, partner. I appreciate it. So look, y'all, if you followed my page here in the past few weeks, you've noticed that I have been in and out of town a lot. Uh, doing some things to promote the book that I have coming out. I'm co-authoring at the end of, uh, I think it's fall. We're co-authoring a book in, in fall. And you know about the friendship and the brotherhood that Kevin Donaldson and I have developed. Man, it's a strange story and we're going to talk about it. But look, so I asked KD to come on to the podcast today, you know, just so people can can see him. We can invite him in. He's a part of our family now. And man, this dude has an amazing story. If you've not heard it, it's, he's written it down for me in the bio, but I don't think I'll do it any justice by reading it out. But look, this man is a survivor. He's a survivor of not only uh, multiple suicide attempts and PTSD. And now his mission is to talk about the PTSD that's involved as law enforcement officers. Most of it goes undiagnosed. And that's the premise of the book that we are co-authoring and uh, issuing out the fall of 2023. The name of the book is, Man, You Are Crazy. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about everything that we have going on, but I want to introduce to you all my brother, Mr. KD Kevin Donaldson. Welcome to the Crime of Kicking Podcast, brother. Thank you both for having me on the show, Fatima. It's, it's been a I've heard so much about you. It's a pleasure meeting you. Well, <laughs> what's the bio? I want to hear the bio. Let's let's tell our audience a little more about Kevin's background. Uh, I was a police officer. I, I joined the police force shortly before 9-11. So I was actually in the police academy during 9-11. You know, I, ha I got hired by this real small suburban upper class town. So, you know, it was a real safe opportunity. And while I'm in the academy, things change real quick because we had a, one of the people in charge of our academy was Captain Jack. Okay, Captain Jack comes in and says, hey, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. It didn't register because planes hit those, believe it or not, planes hit those tall buildings all the time back then. Corey Lydell from the New York Yankees drove a Cessna into a plane. That's what we thought it was. And then he comes in and says the second plane hit the World Trade Center. And I was sitting across the aisle from, uh, I'll just say her first name, her name is Kristen. Her father worked for Cantor Fitzgerald. So you see this horror on her face. And now when the second plane hits, we realize something more is happening. And this, this safe job, it was a job at that point. This safe job that I took just changed overnight. We all got recalled to our departments and all of a sudden we said, you know what? This stuff is real. This is, this is happening. And, you know, once after 9-11, the police world changed, you know, how we did our business, especially here in the East Coast. But it was a job that I loved. Like, it was a job. I used to think of police work as you're arresting bad guys, you're doing. No, the police work had very, very little to do with arresting bad guys. It was the impact on the lives that you touched. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite stories of all time was I was on a, an emotionally disturbed person call. It was a mother and she had a little kid. Her name, little kid's name was Mason. This, this, we're going back 15, 17 years, something like this. And she had a knife and she was going to kill herself. She was emotionally distraught. She wouldn't let anybody near her kid. And all she wanted somebody to do was sit down and talk to her. So here I am in uniform. I'm within 21 feet of somebody with a knife. And Chris will tell you there's the 21 foot rule where you don't go that close to somebody with a knife because they can stab you before you can draw your weapon and fire. I did it. I broke every rule. And I sat there and this kid just sort of shied away from me. As I'm talking to this woman, you see the kid, you know, I'm, I'm not as tall as Chris, but I'm pretty tall. I'm a, I'm a big guy. And the kid just starts moving closer and, you know, he's looking at all the ribbons and the, the things on my belt and just moving closer to me and closer to me. Ultimately, we get this woman out, we get her help. You know, the kid was able to stay with his grandmother and that was it. You know, it was on to the next call. Until about 10 years later, I'm in a supermarket and I'm in plain clothes. And I hear somebody calling from the back state, Officer Kevin, Officer Kevin. And I turn around and there's this 14, 15 year old boy there. I didn't recognize him. And he says, you're Officer Kevin, right? And I said, yeah, my name's Kevin. He goes, well, I'm Mason and you helped my mom out. And my mom's doing really good right now. And that's some, that's police work. Okay. That is police work. 
That's the impact on one person's life. Mm -hmm. If I did nothing else in my career, that would have been enough to have success, you know? And it was a job that I loved. It was, it wasn't so much a job as that was, that was a calling. But the problem with police work is we see things that people aren't supposed to see. And slowly over time, those, those things weigh on your shoulders and weigh on your shoulders and it slowly chips away at your soul. And it could be something as innocuous as a fatal motor vehicle crash or a homicide or a suicide. You know, people drive down the road and they see flashing lights. They always want to see what's going on behind, behind the flashing lights. Well, we're there looking at it and it's, it's stuff that you're not supposed to see. And usually around the between 10 and 15 year mark, it starts to weigh on you pretty heavy. And uh, sometimes it's a small event that makes, makes you tip. Mine was a, a fairly big event where I was almost, uh, I was almost shot during a domestic incident. The bullet came within half an inch to my left ear and really put me in a tailspin, kind of broke me down. And, um, yeah, it went on from there. How long were you on the force? I was on for 13 years. 13. I stayed in the same department, but my specialty was, while Chris did homicide, I did fatal motor vehicle accidents. Uh, oh. Chris, Chris, I loved it. I absolutely loved oh, it. That's, that's I was that nerd. I'm a nerd. Like, I'm, I'm a big, giant nerd. And I love the math that's involved. And yes. I love... Too much math. It's, I loved it. I loved it. So the, here's the difference between what Chris did as a homicide detective and what I did. Chris goes to a scene and he's trying to put together a puzzle with like half the puzzles missing. It's, it just left the area. With a fatal motor vehicle accident, all the puzzle pieces are there, but you just got to rearrange them in such a way to put them together mm -hmm. to figure out. Get a reconstruction happened. expert, right. all mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've worked in that. And like Chris, I go cross-eyed. Mm -hmm. I love it. <laughs> love it. I can probably tell you most of the, the metrics from most of my fatal motor vehicle accidents that I investigated. Wow. Mm -hmm. I was so that you, nerd. I mean, you've got to like math. I do because there's a beginning and an end to it. Right. That's why that's what the, there is no guesswork. It's math. Math is math. Mm -hmm. and, my, and the funny thing is, is my degrees are in literature, which is highly subjective where math, math is not subjective. Right. It's only objective. It's mm -hmm. one plus one equals two. There is no one plus one may equal two or it may equal three, you know, where literature and I think that's what apply what what drew me in the literature is there wasn't a beginning into it and an end, and it was something that I could figure out because I was that nerd pulling headlamps out of there to see if the headlamps were on the time of collision because the tungsten filament would heat up and it'll bend during a crash. And, um, and so to explain to our listeners a little more, it's it is fascinating, and the reason you call yourself a nerd is because. When there's a motor accident, especially a fatal one, it's being investigated, you need to know how fast were all the cars involved going? What was the speed? You look at the tire marks, you look at the car itself to determine exactly what happened. Who was at fault? Was somebody going a little over the speed limit? Did somebody swerve in front of somebody? And it's really important because especially if somebody else is at fault, if they were texting or distracted or anything like that, you can be charged mm -hmm. for negligence in that. So I don't think a lot of people realize you absolutely can be charged for just texting and driving and running into someone and killing them or hurting them. That is a felony. And you're not just going to get a ticket. No, mm -hmm. you're looking at manslaughter, vehicular manslaughter. Mm -hmm. the, the old days were a little easier with texting, though. The old days were a little bit easier. You call up one of the phone companies. And they just give you the information. Now you got to right. go through. Now you got to go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that it was it was a it was a real passion of mine. Now, aside from seeing, you know, people at their worst moment, some of the things that chip away your soul is you have to go to the autopsy because in order to prosecute anybody, the body is a chain of evidence, or you have to notify the the living, the whoever the next of kin is, and. If you've ever had to look in somebody, I know Chris has had to do this. If you've ever had to look in somebody's eyes and tell them that their loved one is no longer here, mm -hmm. it, it, it's a bad situation. It's you know, that, that's something that I don't talk about that much, man. I think that it got to a point when I was working homicide cases that I was okay with the carnage that happened. I, I got to be okay with it. And it took me a while to get to that point. But I think the hardest part my job with all of the homicides and murders and death scenes that I investigated, the hardest part that you just cannot 
change it. You can't mimic it. You can't think of it in another way is the human aspect of telling somebody that their loved one is never coming home again. You can't, you can't mask it. You can't, you can't change it. And I had a case that I discussed in the book about a family member that I was, that was murdered and you know, how sometimes law enforcement come in and they, they mask the human emotion that's involved with death notifications is they'll just kind of be just kind of stoic to detach themselves from the situation. And what ends up happening is family members and loved ones will feel like they came over here and they didn't really care. They didn't care what happened to my, me and my, my son. They didn't care what happened to my daughter. And it's not that. It, it really is. That's that human being's way of masking the job or the task that's at hand. So I talk about that in, in my book and it took me to learn it. It took the death of my close family member and then me going into homicide to understand how that happens, how that portion of the job happens. And even process how, for me and my personal experience, one, when we did Reasonable Doubt, just having to sit across from families at the end and mm-hmm. tell them, we're so sorry, we can't give you any help and your loved one might be where they where they should be. That was always the hardest for me, mm-hmm. the hardest, which is why it was always irritating when people were like, oh, they just don't want to help people. Are you kidding me? We will, I wanted to help everyone, but yep. you can't. You can't change the facts of something. And so that to me, I remember it never got easy. I did four seasons. You did five. Every single time before we did it, we would pray. Mm-hmm. We would focus. A lot of times the crew would be outside the door laughing about something. You know, they don't believe it. They don't even know what's going to happen. They never knew what our results were going to be. So they're having a good time and we'd have to open the door and be like, hey, guys, like we need some quiet. We need some Zen right now because we knew what we were about to do was super heavy. And basically what we were doing was telling them your loved one's never really going to come home with these leads you you have. We can't bring them home. And Fatima, I can honestly say that experience is probably as close to giving a death notification that you'll get without giving that notification. It, it, it feels just that bad. Cause look, I was right there with you, you know, giving those notifications and, and I had oh, done it before. It. It, it never gets easier. Death notifications mm-hmm. never get easier. And I don't care how long you ever been in a job. It doesn't get any easier. I had a trial by fire on this one, Chris. So we got to remember, I got on the road and it was, it was as they were doing the recovery for 9-11. And we had a mm-hmm. lot of people in town that worked in the trade centers that never came home. Yeah. And the, as they were finding, identifying body parts and stuff like this, we had to go make the notifications. So you know how many times I sat in my car, hands on the steering wheel, my head down? Because yeah. again, you try to remain steadfast and stoic in front of them. But when the quiet hit, you put your hands on the steering wheel and you, you drop your head and you, you just, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah, man. You know, it got to the point where, I, look, it got to a point where I just stopped trying to mask my emotion. There were, there are a lot of families uh, that will tell you that, you know, Detective Anderson came over here and he cried with us. Cause hell, I could not imagine. Well, I love you. I could not imagine losing one of my kids. It doesn't help that you're six foot six. And if you, if they make fun of you, you're going to turn around and bury them. Exactly. I'm just bopping them over the head. Stop that. Let me get back to what I was doing. People (laughs) ask me that all the time is, is Chris really as sweet as he seems? Is he, does he really have that much heart? And I'm like, I would not call this guy my brother if he did not. Honestly, I wouldn't love him as much. I mean, we are empathetic people, but you absolutely showed that care. And even when sometimes you knew, even when we knew the family, maybe they were going to kind of be rude. Maybe they were already rude to us. Mm-hmm. Even when we had read transcripts where they were using that N word on mm-hmm. jail calls with their loved one, you know, reasons you could have been like, I don't like these people anyway. I don't want to help them. Never, never was that your attitude. It was always with love and compassion, no matter what, because it's a human being. Mm-hmm. And the the second part of this for me is I've been told two times in my life, and you play it back. When I lost my first brother, I remember who told me. When I lost my second brother, I remember who told me. And I play that over and over in my head many times. And you will never forget where you were standing where you were, who it was who told you, how they told you. 
And so if you think those words don't make a difference because you're just some stranger and you're somebody who wasn't a part of their life and they're going to go on to be with their family, it it makes all the difference. Yeah. How you deliver that news, that can that can change their life forever and they will replay that moment. So you have to, no matter how many times you've delivered that news, no matter how jaded you've become, you have to dig down deep and remember you are a human talking to another human who has lost somebody. Yeah. And that's that's important, but that's also heavy. That's mm-hmm. heavy for y'all. So yeah. let's talk about the elephant in the room because, man, you are crazy. We'll talk about this book first. I've told you a little bit, Kevin, about my experience working with law enforcement. I'm a criminal defense attorney, but I've represented a lot of law enforcement. I'm friends with a lot of law enforcement. If you're defense attorneys out there who cringe at that, say what you want, feel what you want. We are all connected. And yes, police officers oftentimes need to be represented as well. Mm-hmm. And I especially represented them with addiction and substance abuse issues. It is very common. There are certain professions where you see that a lot. And obviously with law enforcement, police officers, that's heavy. And one of the reasons is they don't know how else to cope. Mm-hmm. So I've talked to certain departments in the local sheriff's department where I live. Let's talk about what kind of training is given, what kind of counseling and how much of it or lack of it is given before you actually get that badge and that gun, right? Because it's not a lot of hours. When, when I went through, Chris, I don't know, it's probably different than what they're going through now. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you exercise your body. You try to get in, in peak physical condition, go through the academy. And it's, it's an important thing to do, but your mind is probably equally as, if not more important because to endure a 20 to 25 year career of seeing the worst in humanity, nobody's ever, nobody ever called, well, that's not true. Some people call the police just to say hi. Um, the, the lonely elderly have a tendency to do this, but most people call police and when they don't know where else to go. So you, you see all these things and. I know like in New Jersey, they have something called the resiliency program where administration will put one person in charge of the department's mental health. Here's the problem. It's usually somebody that's very well liked by the administration in the police department. Guys are still going to be hesitant to talk to them because you got to remember we're alpha males. Okay. We're, we're type A personalities. We don't want to show weakness and that's a weakness in our eyes. And we're not going to talk to this person because if this person's a friend of the administration and maybe you're not, they may use it against you. Yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. still, it still needs work, this system. Absolutely. When I went through the academy, we didn't do any real psychological training or anything like that. I mean, they did everything they could to fortify the mind against certain things that's happening, you know, making you run in the, in the rain, uh, screaming and yelling at you while you're shooting, uh, you know, things of that nature. But no, not how do you cope with what you're about to endure? Anything like that, no, nah, they, they they didn't do anything. And that's a hard way to, it is complex to train because, you know, back then in the, in the early 90s, we didn't have psychologists that could come into a police academy and kind of teach them how to deal with certain things. And if they did, if they did, we as cops, that's the class you slept in. You know, that was the one yeah. you were in the back of the room where you dozing off to go to sleep in because it just didn't. Didn't think it was an, an an important factor, but go on, just like Kevin said this a few minutes ago. By the time, especially in a city like my city, one of the most dangerous cities there is in this country, when you are subjected to the type of carnage that you see on a daily basis begins to wear on you. And you've become this person. You've been told to lead a job at the job and don't talk about it with your family and don't express anything that you're going through with the family. And that's what I did. That's what I did my first, oh my gosh. I did it till almost until I got promoted, you know, and there are things that I'm writing in this book that my wife didn't know about. She's like, she's like throwing stuff at me, you know, like you didn't tell me this. Well, I didn't tell you this. That's, that's a problem, Chris, because it is, you know, the people at home take the hit, they take the hit because they want to, they want to be engaged in your life. So you go home and then, Hey, how was your day? Oh, it was fine. And Mm -hmm. that's what you, that's where you leave it. And then you get, well, you never talk to me. Okay, you mm-hmm. want to talk? Okay, let's talk about the color of that baby that was locked in that toy chest that died. Mm-hmm. You want to talk about the color of that? You mm-hmm. want to hear about? You really want to hear? Come on, let's go. Mm-hmm. And could, then you start getting agitated. You get agitated and that's, behind it. Yeah, you, you, you just don't know how to let that out. 
So as much as you want to talk about it with somebody, you try to shield your, your family from the horrors. This is, a, this is our job. This is, this is what we, some people would say, well, you didn't, you expect all this stuff. No, no, I'm sorry. I did not expect to, to no way have my soul robbed like this. No. Well, and you don't recognize too. And that's the thing when, like you say, Chris, early on, when you're getting these lectures, this training, this teaching, you're kind of ignoring it because not until you've experienced it and not until you've experienced it over and over do you begin to really truly comprehend the wear that it takes on your soul on who you are so anytime somebody's telling you oh these things could happen in your life you're looking at it from far away and you're going well i'm resilient i'm strong i've been through this i've been through that not until you've been through it that you go you know what this is heavy and and i i do need some help and i wish that i had had other outlets and somebody to talk to and so that's what's important, too, because I've talked to departments and I, I've had conversations with people inside and I've asked about the training that these officers are getting, um, even training with how they deal with victims and how to ask questions to to people who have suffered some kind of crime or been through something. There should be training just like on Reasonable Doubt. I would do a lot of reading on ACEs and everything else and basically what kind of traumas people have endured as children. And when you're interviewing somebody who has endured trauma, you really should have some kind of training. You Absolutely. really should understand how to approach them with certain questions. You can't just come at them and ask them anything you want, any way you want. You have to really think about what they've been through. And it should be based on some kind of knowledge you have and understanding of their trauma. But if you're not taught any of that, you don't research any of that then you're not going to be able to be a really great interviewer. You're not going to be able to get the truth. And not just that, you're not going to be sensitive to them and you can cause more trauma. Absolutely. And that happens a lot with police officers who arrive to a scene and they want to interview somebody right away. And we get it. We've talked about this closer to the time of the event is best memory, all of that. But we're also dealing with somebody who's just endured a traumatic event. You mm -hmm. have to be mindful. If you do not have the proper training, if you have not gone through the classes, if you don't understand humans, how to ask these questions or anything else, you can do more damage than you are helping, especially if in the end you don't even catch the perpetrator. You just put somebody through something over and over and over again, whether it be a sexual assault or robbery, whatever. And it's so important to have more training. And departments have admitted to me that there's a certain amount of hours. They're very small. It's normally this two-day training that includes all these other things. And then that's it. That's yeah. it. Like, they don't go back to it. For, I don't know, until years later, and maybe there's another one that comes up, a conference or something that's something that's a choice for people in the department. I know that some departments are starting to make things more mandatory mm -hmm. because studies are coming out. And obviously, based on what we see in the media, departments are being held accountable. And so that accountability comes with making sure that they're putting officers out on the streets that are safe for people mm -hmm. and that will help people not harm them. But for a long time law enforcement didn't have any training or practice on this. And it's yeah. really scary because then we wonder why they're angry. They're closed off. They're hard. Um, you're asking law enforcement, like, have a heart. Well, mm -hmm. they had to get rid of that a long time ago to do their job. Mm -hmm. But that's not really true, right? That's just right. what, that's this stereotype. It's what you were told, that suck it up buttercup mentality mm -hmm. that a lot of these old school officers, and I'll tell you right now, since doing this podcast, I have some law enforcement friends who listen. One is old school, and he's even said, ah, oh, talking about mental health. Uh, I come from the suck it up buttercup generation. Yeah, yeah, that that shit is like a dinosaur. You know, that, that way of thinking needs to be put in a garbage can and thrown in the trash and burn that motherfucker because it's part of the reason why we have so many unjustified shootings that are happening, even though, you know, statistically the numbers are down much less than what they used to be. But now because everybody has a computer, they become, it looks like there's a lot more, but the statistically unjustified shootings or shootings between law enforcement and unarmed people are down. Now, part of the reason- Well, we wouldn't, let me just play devil's advocate. We wouldn't really know Putnam because there were no cameras around before. So it was just law enforcement's word versus other people. So right. we don't well, know that they're really down or that they're just not uh, no. videotaped. No. Right? Uh, uh, well, so w what I'm saying is 
back then, the numbers that were reported, the ones that were reported were oh, much okay. higher than the ones that are being reported and recorded now. That, that, I mean, okay. the numbers are lower. But the point that I was trying to make is a lot of times people respond to certain situations because of how they've handled situations in the beginning. Like in this book, in Man, You Are Crazy, I talk about a situation where I was almost killed. And I'll give you a little bit of the scenario. I gave it on Kevin's podcast, so I may as well give it on ours, right, partner? <laughs> no, so, it, was a, it was a suffering podcast exclusive. I'm sorry. <laughs> we own the rights to that. Dude, dude, he's he been killing me with this. No, so, 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 yeah, we, uh, you know, I'm a rookie officer, and I, I pull up on the scene, and I see this cat that, that is, you know, pointing the SKS rifle at some of the citizens that live in the neighborhood. And I've been working this beat probably about, you know, for two or three months, it wasn't that long, but I, I had run across this dude a bunch of times, you know, he's ex-convict, not supposed to have a weapon, but now he's outside and he's pointing his rifle. This, this, at that time, this was during the mid nineties, this was one of the weapons that was mostly used the 1995 AR-15, you know, so, so it's an SKS rifle. So. I see him pointing at these people that live in the neighborhood, older people, younger people, he's just pointing a weapon at them. I jump out of the car and I start chasing him. And then I remember, okay, you know what? There's no way you're going to win this gun battle because I have a 38 revolver. It's the old six shot gun that, it, that that's what they gave us when we first came out of the academy. We didn't have automatic weapons. They, they gave us a six shot revolver. I'm chasing this dude. He points the weapon at me once. I die for cover. Now I pick my gun up and I'm ready to fire at him. Can't shoot at him this time. And that happens another time. I can't shoot at him that time because I probably would have shot one of the people that was standing behind him. So I ended up chasing him, I catch him, find a gun, put him in jail. That one incident traumatized me so bad that I almost didn't put my uniform back on. Now, I, I almost didn't want to put it back on, but I knew I had a young wife, a young kid, and I had another one on the way. I couldn't, I couldn't just quit my job. So Did I, you talk to anybody about it? I didn't like, talk did you to seek help? Anybody. This oh. is in the 90s. This is in the 90s. The help wasn't available like that, like it is now. Wow. I didn't seek any help. But what it did was every single time a weapon was pointed at me, I shot every single time. I'm sorry. I can't say I shot. I responded. Not only was it during our, we have these simunitions training, we'll do it then, or we'll have, uh, you know, I was on the entry team. Anytime a weapon was pointed at me during the entry team, you know, I'm shooting, I'm shooting. I would sometimes even shoot some of the guys that were on my team, you know, blue on blue type shooting. Even when my son was playing with a weapon. If he pointed it at me, I would respond to it. So you had trigger trauma. Yeah, it was trigger trauma. Now, this wasn't something that, that, you know, this person didn't fire off a single round at me because I'll tell you why. And the only reason he didn't fire it is because the bullet in his gun had stovepipe. That means that the weapon can't fire. I, I won't go into details about it, but one bullet is jammed up in there and it can't fire. That's the only reason he didn't shoot. So knowing that information, having a bunch of people talking to me and telling me, why didn't you shoot him? Why didn't you shoot him? Why didn't you shoot him? That played a role in the trauma it, it, and it really did. So luckily I was blessed enough never to have to use my weapon during the line of duty, but I was traumatized by that event and that trauma was regurgitated when I went to homicide because after this guy was arrested, after he served his time, I'm still with the police department, but now I'm a homicide investigator. And while I'm on my 45 day rotation for homicides, this guy kills another female. Oh. He kills another female. And it's so everything that I had kind of figured out a way that I can deal with comes right back up because now I'm thinking if you had shot him, this young lady would the have guilt. been alive. It's the guilt of it all. Exactly. So if you, you had killed him, but in that moment you were trying not to use that force I, I, and you were yeah. trying to be smart. Absolutely. And so you can't, I mean, you can't just say, okay, hurt somebody later. I should have killed him when I had the opportunity. You have to look at all the circumstances, whether it was warranted in that moment. And that's what you did. Absolutely. But look, now I know that now, mm -hmm. but you know, th this is, this is 31 year old Chris Anderson. This is, a, is this, this the first time you're bringing, like, you're really talking about this is in this yeah. book, man, you are crazy. Yeah. 
Wow. You want to see Chris's emotion on this? So Chris and I sat down and we just had a little talk and I, I pulled this clip because it, it's a powerful clip. And Chris wow. tells, Chris tells that story. Well, I made the mistake, you know, usually that's why I like doing in-person stuff because I, I feel energy, you know, I feel what that person's feeling. And I made the mistake of saying he, when he got to the end of it, say, hey, Chris, how did that make you feel? And you see the emotion on Chris's face and it, it really is uncomfortable to see how much it bothers him 25 years later, right, Chris? I mean, yeah. that's 25 bothers, years later. It, it bothers me now. Yeah, so it, to see that and he just, he looked and he goes, yeah, not good. And that's, that was the thing. And that's what it does to you. The guy with me shot at me point blank, okay? And I, I was never able to return fire because I never saw him. I never once, I just saw a flash. And as I went down the rabbit hole, an incident happened with my son. I had a three-year-old at the time and I had an eight-month-old at the time. Mm -hmm. And my eight-month-old, I couldn't take him crying. It was just, I, I was just in a real bad headspace. But my three-year-old had Nerf guns. So he points a Nerf gun at me because he's playing with his dad. I grabbed the Nerf gun and I spin it around on him like a criminal was pointing a gun at me. I, and I see this look on his face. He's scared because I ripped it out of his hands. And then I snapped it in two. And to this day, I don't know who was more scared that moment, him or I. It scared me so much that I left my house because I was, I was this monster. And I went and lived in the woods for three days because I didn't know where to go. You just lived in the woods like outside? Yeah, this was as I was just going down, down, down so quick that I had no control over myself. And pretty much when I was in the woods, see, here's another thing too, is I rarely carried my gun off duty, my backup gun. I rarely carried it. More of a liability. That's the way I saw it. Mm. I, you know, I practice Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Listen, I'll take you down and I'll snap your arm with my hands. So I never thought I needed it, but I, I was getting paranoid because I wasn't sleeping. So I started carrying my gun. I'm living in the woods with just a gun, not sleeping, up against a tree. I don't know what my plan was. I didn't have a plan. And it was probably the first time where I started thinking that this is, this is bad. This is something I can't handle. Maybe this world's better off without me. So this book is going to have some heavy content about what you've both been through and experienced. What's the hope? What what helped you out of this? Your life now, Kevin, has so much value that in just a short amount of time of actually interacting with you, I can tell why you were spared from whatever attempts you made. Your life has so much value. How did you realize that and come to where you are now? If you're not learning from your failures, from your trauma, it's a wasted experience. So as I'm sitting in group therapy after my shooting and I, I'm starting to come out of it, you know, I'm coming out of this fog of alcoholism, of taking pain pills, of, of really trying to destroy myself. In walks certain people into this group that I started telling them, okay, keep your eyes out for this. I started just giving them some of the information that I had lived through. And then each day just got a little bit easier. As I started letting go of all this stuff, you know, I was holding it in. You know, you, guys don't tell each other, hey, listen, I, I had a gun in my mouth last night. We just don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, and with these people, because there was other officers who were involved in shootings, I was able to, to, to tell them. And if I can tell them that I survived after having a gun in my mouth, when they're in that same situation, maybe they'll think, well, Kevin survived. That means I can survive. And that's, that's what started to, to, to that ascent from the depths. But it was a long, long journey because I had done some real damage to myself. I'd done some real damage to myself, my children, my, my wife, my, you know, everybody else around me. I isolated myself. Um, my friends were gone. Rock bottom. Yeah. Yeah. Rock I mean, well, rock, rock bottom, rock bottom happened several times. There, right, there, it does. It was a, it was more of a plateau at the bottom than you know, yeah. just, just a valley. It's interesting you said that. I I have this other podcast I love to listen to. I don't know if you guys ever listened to it. Armchair expert Dak Shepard, he's a recovering addict, and he relapsed after years and years of sobriety. He would go to these meetings. He had been attending his AA meetings for years, decades. He created these friendships, and he felt 
so good going every time and being that pillar for other people, right? Look, if he did it, if, you know, Dax has been sober all these years, I can do it. And he said it was almost like it just became a routine. He was the guy who was sober all these years. Every time he would come to these meetings, it would help. But he wasn't really a person who was stuck still in the struggle. And then when he relapsed, he was ashamed to tell anybody in the meeting. So he hid it for a while. And he realized the freedom came with sharing it. He realized that these people who were next to him the whole time in these meetings didn't want to just see the brave guy who has conquered sobriety. They wanted to see the person who has is still struggling. And that is what helps them because mm -hmm. then they're reminded you can fail and pick yourself back up again. Mm -hmm. And he said that he never felt more relevant in helping other people like he did in coming forward to tell the truth that he had relapsed and that he needed help. And so there's this mentality we all have on social media, in our lives. The person we put out there to the world right now, that we all have to look perfect. We all have to look like we have it together. And one question people always ask me when they're interviewing me when I was doing the show or the things like, how do you balance it? You have your law firm, you have the show, you have a family. And they want to hear this perfect little put a ball on it story of how I balance it. And I was always like, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I'm a hot mess every day. It's difficult every day. Um, at least once a week, there's breakdowns, there's crying. Chris remembers it. You know, I miss my family or I'm overwhelmed with my office while I'm on the road. There is no balancing at all. Oh, from the outside in, it just looks like you have it all together. That's that's a false narrative that people put out there on their social media, on their perfect little curated Instagram to make, I don't know, to make themselves feel better. But that's not reality. Right. And so the the best thing we can do, the best thing we can do for one another is share the vulnerable sides of ourselves, the sides that don't have it all together, the messy side, the side that's struggling. When you can expose that, um, it not only helps you, it really does help other people because mm -hmm. it's in the truth. As When we're living in truth is when we can actually begin to heal. But if we're just living in a lie, then nobody, nobody can help you. Right. But team, right. I'll tell you, to be honest with you, I'm afraid every single day. I'm afraid for my children. I'm afraid for my well-being, finances. I'm afraid that I'll relapse. I'm afraid that those suicidal thoughts will pop in there. But, you know, I teach this to my kids too. I teach them the definition of courage. The definition of courage is being afraid, but doing it anyway. And I'm, I live with fear every single day of my life. Okay, but I still move forward because I survived for a reason. I survived to write, man, you are crazy with Chris. I survived to talk to officers who are involved in shooting. I survived to talk to people on my podcast about their trauma and the tools that they use to get through it every single day. And you had asked a question and it fits in right here. It's like, why write this book? Because when I want people to read this book, either law enforcement or families of law enforcement, I want them to get done, or my kids, like one day I want my kids to read this book and go, oh, okay, I get it now. I get why dad was like that. Right. I get why my husband was like that. Right, yeah. right, right. And it is a gift. It is a gift you give other people because your children, they've had trauma from watching you endure these things. They have had trauma. And whether you thought you were hiding things from them or not, children feel it. They, mm -hmm. they have discernment more than anybody else. They will feel it. And so in now coming forward and telling your story and, and putting it in a book for them, that is healing for them. Mm -hmm. It helps them better understand what you were going through and it can help them heal from the trauma of what they witnessed. So yeah. that is really important. And I talk about this a lot. There's a study I've read many years ago and it's a really important study because a study was done on two different demographics and individuals who felt isolated and had made suicide attempts and had felt depressed, like they didn't have anyone. And the other group were people who went through things, but they overcame that and they didn't have those kinds of thoughts. And the difference between the two were that parents of the individuals who never really had those thoughts, those, those parents and their grandparents were very open and transparent with issues that they had. Now, not necessarily putting, you know, all of your burden on your kids, but just being honest, maybe about financial struggles, about addiction issues, about what the marriage was going through. Just being honest with your children and saying, we're going to get through this. And mom overcame this. And 
you know, as the father, I overcame this. Telling your children your adversities and what you've overcome helps them down the line realize mm-hmm. I come from this long line of overcomers. Right. I'm not alone. Right. I'm a Donaldson. I'm an Anderson. I'm a Silva. Whatever it may be. Actually, that's, that's not my married last name. So my husband <laughs> would kill me. But anyway, so those children, they grew up feeling stronger and less isolated because they could see their ancestors overcoming. So they knew this is hard, but I'm going to get through it. And for some reason, the ones who had more of those thoughts were people whose parents never really opened up to them about a struggle, never Mm -hmm. showed them how they overcame. So I know for a lot of you parents, you want to be like these superheroes for your kids. And I get it. There is a certain point where you want to shelter them from knowing everything that happens, right? They don't need Mm -hmm. to know all your marriage drama. But do trust your children. They are emotionally intelligent little beings. Trust them to understand what it means that mommy's scared, but I feel brave. Mommy's sad, but I'm going to be okay. Those kinds of things. And that's something I'm learning in, you know, from my grief therapist, because my kid will see me cry sometimes over the loss of my brothers. And I felt a lot of guilt about that. And, And she explained it's important for him to see the sadness. It's important for him to see your pain. But it's more important for him to learn that you're going to pick yourself up out of that. Well, the, you know, you, you bring up something that was that was really an important point because I I've, I've recently rediscovered my faith. OK, within the past yeah. two years. And, you know, what I take I would always ask my kids, hey, you want to come to church with me? You want to come to church with me? And when they would come to church, like when, when they start singing in church. I'm a, I'm a big mess. Like I'm a big baby. I'm, oh yeah. I'm a crier at the moment I'm, worship starts. Yeah. I'm crying. Cry. I mean, tears are streaming down. And, but my kids are there. I, I would like bite my lip and you'd see my <laughs> lip quiver. And, <laughs> and I was talking to a friend of mine and they said, man, just let it go. And I did. So one day I did. And then I never, I never make my kids go to church. I would say, Hey, I would just ask them, Hey, you want to come to church? Well, one day my oldest goes, my oldest is 13 now. And uh, he goes, yeah, dad, I want to, without me asking dad, I want to come to church. I go, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. And he goes in the youth and now it's, it's like our thing. Mm. We, we go and we bond there. So, you know, that leading by example, we, we always want to teach our children by example. Mm-hmm. Well, vulnerability is an example also, and it's yes. not a bad thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 Especially for your sons when you're men. Um, yes, men, teach your sons that. I, I had a conversation with a gentleman the other day. Uh, and Fatima knows this about the relationship between me and my son. For a while, it was not the best. He just wanted some time. And, and that was the one thing that I gave to everybody else, especially the job. But I was talking to them and told them that, look, I'm still trying to figure this fatherhood thing out. You know, I mean, my son didn't have the best relationship, but we're working on it. And now we have a great, great, great relationship now. But uh, that was uh, one of the things that I I regret. I think that's the reason, part of the reason why I do so much mentoring is because I want to pour back into the lives of other young men who've not had that. Because I didn't start telling my son that I loved him. Like, man, I love you, dude, until he was like 12 or 13 years old. Then he's smelling himself. He's all musty and stuff. And he's like, he got little girls. He's like, dude, dad, don't, don't be so feminine. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's taking on my own traits. And I'm like, man, I love you, man. So now at 26 years old, I tell him that all the time. He's like, dad, I love you too. He'll give me a hug. And it's, it's this little things like that, that I, I miss about having him as a, as a baby, as a, as a kid. But I love this dude. I love the way this dude is growing up, man. And I, I thank God and it's never it. too late. Oh, it's, it's never, just never too late. Too late. Never. Everybody's going to endure trauma throughout their life and everyone's going to have the opportunity to overcome it. Yeah. And so whether you were present when they were younger and maybe they grew up and because of that lack of having somebody, that fatherly figure there, yeah. that person saying, I love you, it's not too late. And now you look at CJ, he's a very emotionally intelligent yeah. man. That's right. And they're hard right. to find these days. Mm-hmm. And I do hope that this younger generation, I can say from experience, looking at the way that my male friend's father, it is changing. And I love to see it. And it's because of these open conversations. It's because of safe spaces for men Mm -hmm. to have these conversations, whether it be with one another, even finally opening up with their wives. There's so many books now. I'm such a believer in books. Y'all, if you don't know what to do, you don't know what steps to take, 
Podcasts are free. Experts are available on podcasts all the time. And there's books mm -hmm. and they teach you so much about the brain yeah. and the way it all works. And I read them because Chris knows I'm trying to figure out how to discipline a four-year-old, right? But I've got to understand his little brain. My kid is sassy AF and he's smart, but he needs some discipline. Right. And I can't spank him. I know a lot of you out there, like, give him a good spanking. Listen, I hear it from my parents too, okay? I'm old school. I did grow up. It doesn't I was work. Spanked. It doesn't Well, here's work. the thing. I'll tell you. For me, I don't know if it worked or it didn't work. For me, it didn't go either way. It was it was my mom. My mom was um, the punisher. My dad couldn't harm us for anything. My dad's mm -hmm. just a softie. God bless him. My mom, we would joke her feet would fly off the floor when she spanked us. She would spank us so hard. But um, my, my mom taught Darth Vader how to use a lightsaber <laughs> practice on a broomstick. So my parents, they, they went a little overboard. I have never, and I mean never, hit my children. Never once. Because the more my parents... Not even a slap on the hand, Kevin? Not even a slap on the hand. Ooh, I'm Lord, able to I'm give guilty. them a look where... I'm able to give them a look where it's, it's the same look like, calm down or I'm going to cut your thumbs off. All right, it's that mm -hmm. look. But I'm able to give them that look and they just stop. Because the more my parents hit me, I'm like, well, you're hitting me. <laughs> I'm going to do right. something to deserve it. I'm, you know what? I'm going to do something yeah. even worse to deserve it. And it never worked. It yeah. never well, worked. Well, there are studies, especially they're out there, everyone. So I'm sorry if y'all old school people, the old school brown and black folk, especially yeah, those no, who grew right. up in the church who believe mm -hmm. in that. Um there are studies that show, especially for men, and this is why I think it, and I can tell you right now how different it was. So being the only girl in my family, getting spanked by my mother was, it's a different dynamic. I feared my mother and we have a great relationship. I, I do think for me as a female, it scared me. And so I just did everything I could to avoid getting spanked for my brothers. It's a humiliation factor. Yeah. It is abuse and it didn't work well for boys, especially my oldest brother. He remembers the humiliation of it. And, and yes, kids can be humiliated by their own parents mm -hmm. in your own private home. Nobody else even needs to be around and your kid will feel the humiliation. And what that does is it turns into anger. And what that does is you're now telling your kid, don't hit other kids, but I can hit you. And that makes no sense. It's hypocritical. And studies have shown boys who are spanked, they do turn out more violent than those who do not spank. So don't get mad at me. Just read some books before you come at me. But those things do matter. So I forgot how we even got into all this, y'all. <laughs> it's the wormhole of discipline. It's all about it's all about learning. You're never too old to learn. And Chris and I talk about this a lot. We love learning. Mm -hmm. It's part of why we have this podcast. You all think we just want to entertain you, but deep down, Chris and I just love learning. We love having experts on. We love having guests on who know more about things that we don't. And it starts with mental health for sure. And this conversation is so important. We have a mm -hmm. lot of listeners who are in law enforcement. We have a lot of male listeners. And they've come out and said since we've been talking about mental health on a few podcasts now that they really appreciate it, that they struggle, and that for so long, this conversation has been shunned. It's been frowned upon to stay out in public, but it's important to have now because men don't have that outlet. Women, mm -hmm. whew, we go to each other all day long about our woes, right? And we can open up about the most vulnerable things. And that's the beauty in having women friendships and why we're just the more intelligent and emotionally intelligent beings. Sorry, oh, y'all. But that doesn't mean <laughs> that y'all can get there. <laughs> Well, men, men aren't going to do that. Like when I first met Chris, I'm like, he looked a little down. I'm like, Chris, do you need a hug? <laughs> no. Just a, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. No, we don't work. Yeah, but Chris gives the best hugs he does. Sometimes I just want to cry. He's like, you need a hug. Like, right. what? No, what? Chris, Chris, you got to go to the bathroom. Do you want me to go with you? <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. We're different. We're different, but I'm glad we are. When a man can begin to open up with his wife and embrace that friendship of being vulnerable, if not right. with anybody else, but with his wife, it's like a safe space. Mm -hmm. And it's because you've been together so long, you start to realize this person actually can help me process this. 
They're not going to hold it against me. When you've been loving each other that long, they do have your best interest in mind. Mm -hmm. And so it, I also encourage men to open up to their wives if you're comfortable enough, if that's a safe space. Um, you're obviously because... not married to an Italian. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. My wife. My... My husband, so my husband's Irish and he makes jokes about being married to Latina that we're a little crazier. But uh, <laughs> this Latina here, I am an advocate of talking it out. And my husband, who comes from old school, New York, Irish, they are all about, you don't talk about it. You don't mm. open up. You don't show emotion. That's kind of his whole family. So I just come in like this storm of, let's all talk about it. Let's get it out there. <laughs> but if you're close to me, we're going to talk. We're going to have the tough conversations and you're going to have to open up because just talking about it helps you process it. Right. Right, right, right. I agree with that. So the book comes out in the fall, and mm -hmm. um, I'm really shooting excited for, about it. We're shooting for September 26th, which is Mental Health Awareness Day. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Mental Health Awareness Day. Okay. So you two are the co-authors. Anybody else writing stories in this? Well, there's, there's going to be commentary by people who are mental health professionals. There's going to be commentary by a couple other people in there. There's going to be our stories and it's going to be peppered in there with other commentary on, you know, the, our stories are our points of view. Well, mm -hmm. there's plenty different sides to those stories and they're all going to be peppered in there. Right. I love that you guys are doing this. I hope people can pick it up and read it and recognize that it's okay to have these conversations. Uh, it's important that it gets out there. As a recovering addict, I don't know if you've ever read the book Chasing the Scream, but the most important thing that they found out about addiction is a way to combat addiction. The best way is connection. So it's not locking people up. It's got to be connection, human mm -hmm. connection yeah. with other people. And that's why AA works wonderfully. Having a sponsor, it works great for a lot of people because it's the human connection thing that, that's most important to overcome. And I think this could probably be true for depression and other things. So I love, one, that you guys are writing this book, but also that you're connecting so many other people in writing this book. And you two come from different worlds, but you're connecting based on this and you're going to bring a lot of other people in who can connect with you. And that's what's important to feeling less isolated, mm -hmm. to wanting to turn to substance or something like that. This is what's going to help. And so kudos to you both for having the conversation that a lot of other people may mock, that a yeah. lot of other old school law enforcement may say, eh, that's a bunch nobody of garbage. Can, we don't need that. Nobody can judge me more yeah. than I've judged myself. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's Absolutely. why I throw that stuff out there with, with no filters. Go ahead. Cause I mm -hmm. guarantee whatever you're going to say, I've said to myself. Right. Oh. Man, you are crazy with Kevin Donaldson and a guy we all know, detective Chris Anderson, and it'll be out in September. We're also shooting to have the audiobook re be released at the same time as the paper. Yeah. It's not going to be like, we're not going to get anybody else to do it. It's, it's going to be in our own voice. Is that ever you? Yeah. Can I do you actually, Chris? <laughs> Chris is going to put on his Barry White. That's right. I'll be talking to the camera right here, right in front of the microphone and just whispering <laughs> to everybody's, what was the ASMRs? <laughs> yes. But I do want to spend a few minutes talking about the case. Absolutely. My partner's coming out with his book and I couldn't be more proud. I'll get emotional just thinking about it. But for those of you who don't know, Chris has like 10 different jobs. So I don't even know how he wrote a book, um, but he did. And it's good. It's called The Case. And Chris, give us a little synopsis about what this book is about. So, you know, I start the book off. I talk about the way I, I got into investigative work. I talk a little bit about some of the things that happened to me in patrol. And, but the case is really a book about how a homicide case actually made me realize, helped me to become a better investigator, it helped me to become a better husband and helped me to become a better father because, you know, you, life is not guaranteed and, and, and you can lose your life at the moment's notice and, and everything about it will turn upside down. So uh, I worked this case and this is not one of the cases that was ever featured on First 48. This is before First 48. This is before any of those uh, crime TV shows were on television. So this happened back in Wow, this is probably 2005, 2006. I was a rookie uh, homicide investigator and I was just getting my 
you know, my feet up under me. I've been there for about two or three years now working cases. I'm going through a lot with, you know, with my wife and my kid, my, you know, my wife, I'm still spending way too much time working, not spending any real time with my kids, but I'm still trying to be there. But when I got a fresh homicide case, I'm not there. I'm not. I mean, you, you constantly thinking about what you need to get done. Uh, but I want to be there. So not many of you know this, but my, I have two daughters, but one of my daughter's name is Kayla. Uh, and, and she's, you know, she's, a teenager. She's young. She's, she's my, that's my heartbeat. My son is my pride. My daughters are my joy. Uh, so I, I sit down and I talk to her, we have a long conversation and then I go back in the room and, and have to deal with the reality of that me and my wife are not in a good space at this time, which is not. And it's because I'm spending so much time at work. And that night I get a call out to a homicide case and I get up my clothes on, you know, tell my wife, Hey, I'll be back. You know, I got to go out. We got another case and get in my car. And, I, and I'm thinking to myself what I need to do as a father while I'm driving away. I hadn't talked to my wife about it and talked to my kids, but I hadn't talked to my wife about what I need to do to make things right in my house. So I get there and I pull up on the crime scene. It's just a normal homicide case. You know, we're out in this actually a parking lot for high, for middle school. And, um, the car, I, I remember this, like it was yesterday, the tires on the car was still spinning because the gas was being depressed by the body of the victim, of course. So I get over, they get the car shut down and we start to process everything on, on the crime scene. And I'm over there talking to my lead officer and I walk around and I, I don't know what it was, but I look at this victim. And when I look at it, I can see in her eyes. And that's when the, I asked the, I asked my officer, I'm like, what's her name? And he tells me her name is Kayla. And for a moment, everything, including my heart, everything just stops because I saw my child sitting inside of that vehicle. And I had to pause. I had to stop for a minute. I had to, I had to think about everything that was happening in my life. And here is my child. This could have easily been me. This girl is not too much older than, than my child, you know? So I, I kind of go through my investigation. I kind of get myself back together because it's, it's starting to affect me really. And I go back through, I do some knock and talks and we, we do everything we need to do. And then we leave the scene and I go to the victim's family's house. It's about three or four o'clock in the morning. Now sun's about to come up and I'm seeing these pictures in this house. These, these kids are on the wall and there are pictures around the wall and all of these accomplishments. And it's like my house. I have my kids' accomplishments on the walls and I have my kids' pictures on the wall. And, and I don't know what it was. I don't know why it happened, but I started seeing myself, this case, I, I, what it felt like throughout this entire investigation, I was working my own child's homicide. Okay, so if you were already really consumed with work yeah it just it it, it went control. to an entire new level then uh and and yeah well don't tell us if you caught the perpetrators and what happens but yeah it's um, a it's a long story it was a it was a long investigation I'll, I'll just say that and it uh made me realize a lot of things yeah absolutely absolutely it changed the course of my life because i don't think my wife and i would be together uh had i not changed course I don't think I would be the person that I am today had I not had this case. And, and, and the thing about it is I'm still friends with her brother at the time. I write about him a lot. I'm still friends with the mother in this case because it, it was her mother that helped me realize how bad off I was, how far out I was. Uh, I love that because that's, that is some healing for them. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is this mother who has suffered so much. Mm -hmm knowing that she actually, as a result of her daughter's horrific death, mm -hmm. that she, this mother has had an impact on your life, your marriage, your family. Oh my God. That is healing for her. I write a, I write a, a lot about it in the book. Mm -hmm. It's, it's all in the book. I talk it's a lot so about good. it. It's so good. Yeah. It's so good. It's so open, honest, beautiful, vulnerable. And it's also page turner. I loved it. I think that's, I think that's really important for a book. You want to see what happens next in both your personal life and with the case. 
I'm really excited for people to read this story. It gives a little more insight into who you are as a human being, as Mm -hmm. an officer, somebody who bleeds blue and cares for people. So we want them to go and buy the book. Now, there's a pre-sale right now, uh, especially for our listeners, right? So the book comes out April 1st. Mm -hmm. But if you are one of our listeners, you are VIP. And so how can they access the case right now, Chris? So I'm doing this exclusively to our Crab and Cookie Juice listeners, guys. So y'all, I would appreciate your support because it was hard for me to write this book. It's extremely hard. But you can go now through our Crab and Cookie Juice podcast. We'll have a link to where you can purchase the book. And these are the exclusive pre-sale. This is just for our Crab and Cookie Juice listeners. The book does not come out until April 1st. But you we need up. your support. You, support, support. boy. You all talk about you miss us. You want reasonable doubt back. Blah blah blah. Well, let's let's buy our partner's book and yeah. let's get him back on TV and maybe he'll bring me along. Hey, <laughs> I can't go without my sister. I can't do it. But that. I truly believe in supporting these kinds of stories that are going to make all of us better in the long run. It's not just indulgent and not just something you can be a spectator. It will change you. It will make you think. And so let's go support. Go to crimeandcookiejuice.com, the website. Chris will have a link there so that you can buy the book. It's only a hundred dollars, Chris. It's I'm not that I'm just quite, kidding, quite y'all. How much is it, Chris? How much <laughs> is it? So we haven't set a price yet, but it, yeah, look, okay. I, I, this is my first book. I'm not, I'm not trying to well, let me tell you, I I spend some of these kids' books out there, kids' books that mm-hmm. I could write are like $21.99. So, you know, if yeah. you want to make it more than that, feel free. <laughs> <laughs> so please do support. Thank you for being here again, Kevin, with us. This has been a great conversation. I love it. And hopefully we talk again soon. I love that. Thank you very much both for having me. And there you have it, family. Another amazing episode of the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast with your host, Detective Chris Anderson and Attorney Fatima Silva. Join us again next week where we'll have another amazing guest like we have every week. And we'll have a little crime and... And we'll actually have cookie juice. Sorry, everyone. Just so you know, I want to be respectful of our guests when they are on. And Kevin Donaldson does not drink. And therefore, we're not drinking. But yes, join us next week for more crime. And we'll actually have cookie juice. Cookie juice. That's right. All right, guys. Good night. Stay safe.